welcome to another episode of the Black and Empowered podcast. Uh, oh, yeah. As you guys know, we typically start our episodes with song association. So that's where we're going to start today. Mommy, this word is for you. We're going to start with you. Um, bills. Can't pay my telephone bill. Bills, if did make we chill. Great job. Who's next? Um, I will give my word to Miss Letitia. No, I'm nervous. Okay. The I word just, is, it's 11, y'all. So the word is morning. How, many, how much time do I have? Morning. 10 seconds. <gasps> That's it. That's way more than 10. Yeah, I don't know. What were you thinking of? So many songs. So many. <laughs> What's the song? I can't work the under song, pressure. The song five no, o'clock in the morning. Like, that one works too. Good morning, <laughs> love. Yeah, I can't work under pressure. We know this. It's okay. You could toss one to Brianna or Miriam. Um. Okay, Bree, yours is. You. You fine too, but I want you fine. Okay, okay. <laughs> you were cutting it close. Um, excuse me. She took forever to give me the word. Don't do that. <laughs> Anywho, Miriam, your word is. Green. Green. Oh, this is green. Oh. You got something? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like green. I don't have green. I don't have nothing. I'm like Letitia. This is hard okay. under pressure. I don't have a green. I'm a hum you one. What is it? <laughs> you tried hard too, and I'm like, what? Give me <laughs> a green light. Oh, see, y'all are good. Yeah, no, y'all are good at this. Ah, we do. That's we a good do. one. Um, yeah, I was like, green. Song association challenges a lot. <laughs> Okay, so that was great, you guys. Like we said, we'll always start the episode like this. Um, another thing that we're also going to start our episodes with is Black Excellence. So as you know, we are in a panoramic and <laughs> <laughs> with us being in the panoramic, <laughs> um, we want to talk about the black, black Excellence of the panoramic or the pandemic. So one of the things that we're going to talk about is or highlight is a doctor who was basically acknowledged as a contributor or one of the developers for the COVID-19 vaccine. 
So that's Dr. Kizzy Corbett. Shout out to you, girl. We Hold love on, to let me give her flowers. Dr. Fauci said, my sister's at the forefront of the development of the vaccine. Yeah. He said African-American women were very important in the development of this vaccine. My sis works for the NIH. Nice. And she works with Moderna. And the vaccine that she developed is shown to be more than 90% effective. Period. Period. So claps and snaps go to her. Um, we love Black women. We're a Black woman staying here. And then also the first person to get that vaccine was another Black woman. Sandra Lindsay. Period. Hey, Sandra girl. Love you. We're so happy you were the first. She is an intensive care nurse in New York. And she, like Letitia said, was one of the first to get the vaccine. So as we know, Black people are top tier. Um, and this just shows that they continue to be top tier. So welcome to the episode, guys. So today we're having a special guest with us. We have um, a colleague of uh, mommies, Dr. Miriam, Miriam Jernigan-Noesi. Dr. Jernigan-Noesi is both a clinician and an academic scholar, love to see it, and she understands the importance of considering culture and how this influences a lot of aspects of people's experiences, including racial discrimination and family culture. And she is an expert in the field, period. So put respect on her name. <laughs> we are very happy to have you join us today on the podcast. I am very happy to be here. Okay. So what y'all don't know, I'm going to throw in a little bit here, is that Dr. Jernigan coined the term racial trauma is real. So if you ever see that hashtag racial trauma is real, this is, like Letitia just said, where you put the respect on her name. And we are very, very honored and happy to have her here with us today. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and training? Um, and is there just like anything that we missed that you want people to know? Sure. I mean, I think it, it, the shortest version is that I'm a licensed psychologist. Um, I'm in the Atlanta, Georgia area. I am an academic as well. I've been in academia, academic medicine for, oof, feels like well over a decade, I would say. Uh, both as an instructor as well as a trainer. And I'm also, I mean, I think the other part of my business that's um, evolving, um, and certainly Dr. Metzger, um, and I talk about this often is, you know, I'm also becoming or evolving into a, you know, an entrepreneur businesswoman as well. So really applying psychological science um, and thinking about how academics can kind of use our training and our gifts to both give back as well as to, um, be business people. We're very excited to have you here today to talk about uh, racial trauma. And I would like to focus our conversation, at least the beginning part of that, on that conversation, particularly towards um, our understanding of how we can help Black youth cope with racial trauma. So mm -hmm. for our listeners who aren't aware of the term or aware of what racial stressors and what racial trauma is, could you yeah. talk to us a little bit about that? Who experiences it and what does it look like? Yeah, so what I usually say to folks is that racial trauma is, is certainly a term that we hear more often now, but if we kind of rewind and go back in history, there have been uh, social scientists, so folks who've been like writing about and doing research on what we now talk about as racial trauma for decades. And it had many different names previously. 
Um, but in essence, the idea of racial trauma is that it describes both the psychological as well as quite frankly, the physiological or other health consequences that um, can emerge as a result of experiences of racial discrimination, uh, racial harassment. From a mental health perspective, the argument historically has been just the lack of recognition in our field of the fact that experiences of racial discrimination can lead to um, you know, racial stress. Um, so you know, stressors that really uh, lead to people to react in ways that mirror in some cases historically what the field of mental health or behavioral health sort of thinks about as trauma-related or trauma stress. Um, disorders. And so that was the historical argument, you know, the idea that people are reporting things like being increasingly, you know, hypervigilant, sort of thinking about where they are in space and time, or that they're having flashbacks or difficulty sleeping or really rethinking um, incidents maybe they've experienced directly uh, with regard to racial discrimination or racial harassment, in some cases, reliving or re-experiencing videos that they've watched vicariously, right, of, of other individuals who've been impacted by racism, racial discrimination. Um, and so for some time now, in the field of behavioral health, we've really been thinking about and arguing, and I put, I'll put arguing in air quotes, but really just um, hoping for the recognition that in addition to the ways that we think about the events that lead to traumatic stress and can you know, rise to the level diagnostically of say post-traumatic stress disorder, a specific diagnosis, that racial discrimination and racial, um, you know, racial harassment, racism, um, themselves also can lead to those significant responses by individuals psychologically and in the field of health, really. Um, again, as we look at things like health disparities, so those medical conditions, which, you know, when you look at experiences of people of color compared to their white counterparts, um, there's some disparities with regard to prevalence. And as we even understand those, we're understanding that experiences of racial discrimination and other aspects of discrimination are huge factors in explaining some of the health outcomes. So what happens to people physiologically as a result of racial stress, uh, racial harassment, racism? Yeah, and I really appreciate the nuance that you bring to this conversation. So the understanding that racial stressors don't necessarily have to lead to a clinical diagnosis of racial trauma or PTSD, but certainly that the impacts that we see in our day-to-day -day lives, whether that be physically, biologically, in terms of our mental health as well, can impact likely all of us if we're encountering these experiences, whether that be directly or vicariously. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add to the conversation in terms of clinical diagnosis or the everyday impact of racial stress um, that could yeah. potentially be traumatic? Yes, I mean, I think that's the big distinguishing point for me. This is me and my kind of researcher and clinician hat. Um, mm -hmm. I, I am happy to see that many individuals have been exposed to just the concept of racial trauma. So I'm thinking about, you know, the general public um, mm -hmm. seeing news articles in the Huffington Post an entire series on, you know, racial trauma from a variety of different vantage points. And I think that's educational, that's important. But one of the concerns that I have as a clinician, as a researcher, is that I'm seeing, you know, the terminology as it's been conceptualized, right, and mm -hmm. thought about, and as we think about in the field of behavioral health, sometimes misused. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the important distinction for me is recognizing that experiences of racism, racial discrimination, you know, racial stress, absolutely can have, you know, can and do have significant impact on individuals. 
But from a clinical perspective, when we're looking at diagnostic criteria, right, it's, it's not a one-to-one. -one. It's not that every experience necessarily, right, a racial discrimination is going to lead to a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And certainly racial trauma is not. That's the distinction, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder. It's recognizing the potential for traumatic stress, traumatic stress response. And so I, for me, that, that's important because from an assessment standpoint, I want to have an understanding of something that you pointed out as we talk about youth in particular, across a person of color's lifetime, right? When did their experiences of racial discrimination, right, begin that they can sort of describe? And we know from a research perspective that for people of color, those experiences unfortunately can start early in the lifespan and continue. So they're cumulative, right? So as we think about, again, in my clinician hat, diagnostically, we're looking at across the lifespan, we're looking at you know cumulative experiences, we're looking at intergenerational experiences that also impact individuals as we think about, you know, someone's reporting to us, you know, or, or seeking, for example, one-to-one -one services due to experiences of racial discrimination, all of those things kind of factor into thinking about, right, a diagnostic profile. And so I think that's important that people, I think there are some folks that believe that the argument is racial trauma needs to be, you know, like PTSD in the DSM-4, and that's not actually what, you know, our former scholars are arguing for. We're, we're arguing, I'll put that in air quotes again, for <laughs> just the recognition of the impact, the emotional pain, the psychological injury, and, right, as I, as I was saying, the health and even physiological injury that happens as a result of racial stress. Right. So I think for clinicians, especially those of us who take a strengths-based approach, what we do want to emphasize, right, is that these outcomes are common, these outcomes are likely, but that we do have these strengths within ourselves in terms of emotion regulation, our ability to cope, and within our families and our communities that, yes, us as clinicians hope to help bolster and help uh, empower clients to utilize, but that without us, right, we as Black people know, right, we've been experiencing discrimination, we've been experiencing stressors for quite some time and we do have coping strategies and communal uh, ways of supporting each other that we don't want to then pathologize, right? Everyone who experiences discrimination now, right, is hypervigilant, is experiencing racial trauma, is um, X, Y, and Z feeling any of these outcomes that we talk about. But to say, right, that there are these innate and these common strengths and coping abilities and mechanisms that we use. And you just talked a little bit about young people. And I do know that as child psychologists, that's where our heart lies. So hashtag protect Black youth, right? Could you talk about racial stressors, particularly as they might impact Black youth? And then maybe we can transition a little bit to talking about coping with those stressors. Yes, I mean, I think, again, so let's just start with research, right? And this research, I would say, mostly in the 1970s, you know, there was, I think, increased research. It's interesting because just even the investigation of the, the race-related experiences of youth from a publication standpoint, so again, looking at the scholarship is one way that we know information, right? But that research was really, I think, more prevalent, prominent in the 70s, 80s, and then kind of dips down, but has been consistent, even for folks that have then kind of picked it back up. Um, in other words, looking at the experiences of really young folks with regard to race and, and social interactions related to race, we know that kids as young as two can articulate, and I think that's critically important, right? They're beginning to, to develop language, right, and the ability to tell and to talk about their, their interpersonal experiences amongst their peers, you know, for example, and can describe experiences of racial discrimination, right? Maybe not in the same nuance and language that we are, but certainly that evidence is there. 
it also is a point in time that certainly if folks are engaging in early child, early learning environments, right? We see kids kind of move from the space of maybe immediate caretaking environment. Now they're in early learning environments where they have peers from, you know, perhaps different racial ethnic backgrounds. And so you have different social interactions, right, that can lend themselves to some of the experiences that we've seen young uh, youth of color talk about. But I mean, it also kind of begs the question of, you know, before kids are able to articulate what are their experiences, we don't know, right? So that's where the research is, is limited to some degree. What's important for me is that, especially as I think about families and caretakers who are worried about having conversations about race, if we just look at the experiences of, you know, of children of color, they're having those experiences. Mm-hmm. So it necessitates that everyone is engaged in the conversation. So because like any of the other topics that we're, you know, teaching kids about, we're ideally building their emotional intelligence, helping them articulate, you know, what their experiences are, helping them articulate how it is that they're feeling about those experiences, how, you know, how they're being treated, et cetera, race-related conversations. In other words, what we, you know, sometimes term or talk about is race, racial messaging, right? Racial socialization becomes critically important for parents of color, you know, you know, thinking about helping youth of color really identify and talk about their experiences, but also for white parents, which is, you know, related topic, another topic. So I'll focus on just experiences of youth of color. What often happens, unfortunately, though, is that many families of color sort of enter those conversations proact- not as proactively and sometimes in response to. So I saw a lot of parents in 2020, for example, post George Floyd, not even Ahmaud Arbery or those previous, you know, sort of media related cases, but post George Floyd saying, oh, my goodness, my child stumbled across this, you know, on the Internet at the age of eight. And now I have to have a conversation. And so I'm always a huge advocate. And I certainly, I, I am a mother as well, right? I have a four-year-old. Race-related conversations started way back, right? Both in terms of, you know, just reading and exposure. More explicitly, I would say more so around the age of two. And by observation as a mom whose child has been in early learning and on the playground with folks, I know, right? Based on my observations, when, you know, my child may not be able to articulate, I've certainly seen in his face where he feels like he hasn't been treated fairly as a parent who's very confident in, in, in assessing racial dynamics. I know, unfortunately, that there have been children that have treated him differently as a young brown boy, right, in certain social settings. So it's important for us to recognize those. Those are early, right? And so kids are trying to figure that out. Then as they get into elementary school or having more experiences, what's also important is kind of the generational piece, Right. So if you look at my mom and grandmother's generation growing up, the conversations that they were having, you know, in family and related to race are going to be very different than my son, than even youth that were growing up, say, 10, 20 years ago, where there was a very different societal narrative around race. So how we introduce, how we talk to kids about race really informs their ideas about if racism exists. And that for me is something that's critically important because there are generations of youth that grew up, say, you know, when President Obama was elected and the messaging from them from society was like, you know, that whole idea of post-racial America and racism wasn't a thing. It's something that happened historically. And so when working with those youth, I can recall them being very confused mm-hmm. when they would have interpersonal um, experiences with teachers or with peers that were, were racist. I do think, unfortunately, for youth growing up, post the Obama administration, thinking about society, they're having very different experiences. And so I hear parents saying, oops, we didn't think we had to have this conversation. We hoped we didn't have to have this conversation. And now we need to really prepare youth in ways that we didn't think we would need to in 2020. This was a conversation, you know, for generations of my parents, et cetera. 
So there's the, it's, it's nuanced for me because we could have this conversation, right? And thinking, so we have to think socio, you know, socio-politically and historically, what's mm -hmm. sort of generationally what's going on in society. We have to think developmentally, how old is a child with mm -hmm. regard to their own development, language ability. And we absolutely have to think contextually, but that's, that's where, right? For me, the, the professionalism and as a clinician, it becomes critically important to have these conversations. There's not a singular question we ask to assess racial trauma. All of these factors are important. Right, absolutely. And in coping with it, I like the the process that you've laid out. So anecdotally, it maps on to what we know empirically works, right? So talking to your kids and providing that sort of psychoeducation about what it is that they're experiencing, but also then giving them the opportunity to label their feelings and to talk about how they feel in response to what it is that they've experienced. Um, and I think that you even took that um, a step further into what we talk about in the literature in terms of like cognitive coping so we're not calling it that with our kids but we're saying right how do you feel about that how do you think about that and what are ways that you can respond so not only now but in the future if you are to encounter some of these stressors or some of these images online again right so talking to your kids about right if you see this on Facebook what are you doing are you engaging in conversations with people are you having online debates are those stressing you out and how are you responding are you unplugging are you continuing to have these conversations are you talking with like-minded individuals hey mommy tell them what cognitive coping is like give them a definition for people who don't know what that is Right. So cognitive coping is the way that we understand our thoughts and the ways that we allow our thoughts to dictate how we behave and how we respond to situations. So I think when it comes to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, the way that it's traditionally conveyed is that cognitive coping can be used to restructure people's experiences and their perceptions of racial stressors. And that's what we don't want to do. So we want to be sure not to use cognitive coping to say, oh, did you think that they meant something else? Or maybe it wasn't discrimination or maybe, right, they could have done X, Y, and Z. We don't want to restructure our thoughts in that way. But we do want to be sure when we're talking to kids, when we're talking to adolescents about their responses, about how they think and about how they feel in regards to racial stressors, cognitive coping can be used to, for example, if you're feeling angry or if you're feeling discouraged or hopeless or helpless. In that case, you can use cognitive coping or cognitive restructuring to restructure your responses. So yes, I'm feeling angry, but what can I do to advocate for myself? What can I do in terms of calling a senator, calling a policymaker? What can I do in terms of raising my hand in class as opposed to saying, oh, no one ever calls on me. I'm not going to raise my hand or I'm not going to be engaged. Cognitive coping or cognitive restructuring is a process that allows us to rethink our reactions and rethink our responses as opposed to rethinking our experiences. So what we know about uh, racial discrimination, particularly microaggressions, right, those ambiguous instances, um, or even in overt cases of discrimination, people could say, right, maybe you could have done something differently, maybe you could have responded something in a different way, or maybe it was something else that was actually happening. That's what we want to be, be sure to steer away from in terms of our understanding of racial stressors. But like Dr. Jernigan is saying, to provide that psychoeducation to label exactly what it is that they're 
experiencing, right? So no, it's not that you are less articulate than your classmates or less intelligent than your classmates, right? It might be a micro-invalidation or a micro-assault when someone says, oh, you speak well for a Black person, right? So labeling that as what it is and then restructuring our response in, in terms of understanding, right, fight, flight, or freeze responses and saying, maybe I'm not going to freeze in this case, I have a comeback, right, or a retort that I've practiced with my sister, with my mom, with maybe my therapist that says, what did you mean by that? So just asking a question in response as opposed to freezing or as opposed to yelling or getting angry, asking that question could allow you to put that pressure, to put the ambiguity back on in the hands of the deliverer of the message instead of on your mind and in, in your thoughts. Am I crazy? Is this what they meant? What did they mean? Right? Cognitive restructuring is what allows us to kind of pause in the moment and to think through our responses and our reactions to racial stressors. So I think a lot of the conversation has been focused on like little kids. And I think it's important that we talk about how to have these conversations with little kids and adolescents. I think as like a quote unquote big kid or a young adult, I think I want to get your take or suggestions on how kind of these like graduate students who are going through a process that you've been through, what suggestions would you have for them with their experiences of like coping and having these conversations around racial trauma in the in these spaces that don't feel protective for them at all? I think there's multiple things that we can think about. I mean, as an emerging adult, <laughs> I certainly would encourage folks to actually do some self-reflection with regard to what have been your experiences, not necessarily reliving, right, every, um, you know, incident or example that you have relative to experiences of racial discrimination. But I do think it's important to ask ourselves, like, what have been the messages that I've received or the ways in which I've been thinking about, you know, sort of race and to Dr. Metzger's point, you know, what are my current ways of really coping with, you know, experiences of discrimination, excuse me, so that you can have some understanding, right, of kind of who you are. That's a self-reflective self-awareness piece for me that becomes critically important because we know that, again, from a developmental contextual standpoint, we grow, we develop, ideally, you know, the ways in which we think about things um, become more nuanced. And so as emerging adults, you may have a very different perspective based on exposure and, you know, education, knowledge, et cetera, than you did growing up, right, as a younger child or even, you know, thinking about pre-adolescence and into adolescence. So, you know, a couple of things, especially in terms of thinking about graduate school, I think it is the recognition of the marriage between the realities of higher education for students of color in particular, right? There are still disparities, you know, depending on the institution that you're attending. Certainly I attended a historically black college and university at the undergraduate level. But when I entered my master's program, my PhD program was in my master's program, the only person of color in my cohort and in graduate school, one of very few, right? So the context was, you know, very different and also in different states, you know, at those uh, periods of time. So I think it's it was important for me I was very fortunate, and I always say this, to have parents who were very much so in invested in my positive Black racial identity development. So they were very affirming growing up, right, with regard to establishing positive Black identity, which led to, you know, me to, to feel really com confident and competent. Attending a historically Black college and university for me kind of reinforced those ideas and kind of notions and history and knowledge of self 
that were really critical for me when I was in, in some cases, some really racially toxic academic and professional environments, you know, whether, you know, in practicum, et cetera, right? But as Dr. Metzger, you know, indicated, it for me, what became critically important because I was in environments that likely didn't understand, had no knowledge, whether that was intentional, you know, in terms of their ability to really invest and take interest in what are the experiences of students of color or sort of challenge the, you know, the, the dynamic or climate there, racial climate there. That's another story. But I wasn't going to receive validation necessarily, right, from my master's program, my doc program, again, some of my professional experiences with regard to experiences of discrimination. That didn't stop me, though. I will say this. Mm. Um, when I was a master's student as, again, the only person of uh, color in my cohort at the time, it was a cohort of maybe 30 or over folks, uh, 30 mm -hmm. or more folks, a little over 30 folks. I actually, as a master's counseling student, um, created a program, which I'm remembering now, as you asked me this question, <laughs> that was called something like Eradicating Ignorance. Had a whole poster <laughs> that I created, went back, found some of my professors, right? My network of, professor, of professors of color who were not at that institution and asked them to, and, and also some white allies, but asked them to like serve on this panel that I petitioned the program to put on in the evening. And it was like eradicating ignorance, building the foundation for multicultural competence. I, listen, that was, you know what I mean? That was me. <laughs> um, and so I had to go to the department chair. So Dr. Metzger talked about, right, that piece of, you know, my sort of cognitive coping in the moment was, and, and I do think it's important that we operate from a resistance and an empowerment model, mm, mm. right? The field sort of calls it strength space, but it's, it was like empowerment. I was having, unfortunately, some pretty negative race-related experiences in the program relative to the training, relative to the curriculum. And I was like, I know, right, I've had experiences, I've read things that are different. So let me I may not feel like I'm listened to in a system. So let me leverage my network of other professionals with PhDs that people, you know, may not challenge in the same ways that they see this, you know, first year master's level student, right? That's strategy is what I would tell you all. <laughs> Think strategically because power is a very real thing. And I recall that. And we had a panel and they sort of talked about things. And, you know, so for me, that's a theme. By the time mm. I arrived at my doc program, fortunately there were other faculty of color and the feedback that I ever sort of received is, that I, in systems, right, racism is not just about individual interpersonal interactions, it's systemic. And so what are the ways, right, um, that we can leverage or kind of disrupt the systems in ways that don't compromise our sanity, our mental health, our physical health, or in some cases, in a very real ways, right, uh, lead to situations that may compromise our ability to obtain our degrees, mm. right, or our professional goals. So for me, my mentees will hear me talk about, you know, continuing to build real supportive networks. And unfortunately for many students of color, sometimes that's outside of your academic institution. You all are so fortunate to have Dr. Metzger in ways that, and I also had an advisor of color in my doc program. And it wasn't until I went to larger professional conferences like APA, the American Psychological Association or other places, where I'd hear other students of color talk about not having anyone. Mm -hmm. Right, that not only was interested or had the shared the same research interests, but that was really able to help them kind of move along, you know, understand them, understand what they were interested in. Um, so I try to give back, 
because I know how fortunate I am now as a professional, I'll encourage you all to hold on to that too. You don't have to wait till you have a PhD. There's peer mentoring that can happen, Um, using your peer networks, et cetera, in ways in which you all can collectively support one another across programs because the field of psychology in particular, because that's what what we all are, right? Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. either are or aspiring to be gets really small in terms of topics like racial trauma or kind of race related interests. It's a huge field, but all of a sudden you'll start noticing same folks, right? Right? Who you reading, who knows who, Mm -hmm. (laughs) who's worked with who. Mm -hmm. Um, And so getting to know, I think and building networks outside of your immediate programs so that it, it sort of becomes your arsenal and your support, quite frankly. Um, in addition to, you know, if you are fortunate enough to have a doctoral advisor, you know, or, or that within your program is the other piece. So the strategy is the key piece while holding on to, as Dr. Helms, who's my advisor, used to say, what's your armor, Miriam? So when I feel discouraged because racism is really oppressive and is really pervasive in the field, <laughs> and I would honestly, I'll just be vulnerable. I, you know, I, there were times sat in her office and cried because I was just like, how am I going to get through this, right? And do this. And that for me was about, again, practicum sites and experiences and all sorts of things. And she would say, figure out what your armor is. Mm. I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, listen, it can feel like a battlefield in some ways it really is. And she shared aspects about her journey that I'll, you know, hold close to my heart, but in an effort to prepare me for the fact what you're doing now, Miriam, as a doc student, right, or as a graduate student is going to look a lot like what happens in the field when you go to conferences, these are still going to be your peers. Um, So if it feels like a little bit of a battle, sometimes you've got to figure out what you need to do to take a step back so that you can push the dents in your armor off, right, to go off the battlefield, shine up your armor, Etc. And so for me, it was interesting. I was in Boston at that time and I, I had friends in Atlanta, full circle moment. And I was like, I need to immerse myself in blackness. That was mm-hmm. my armor mm-hmm. because I had transitioned back to the Northeast in a very segregated city, racially segregated city with interesting, you know, race related dynamics. And so every once in a while, when I could, I would fly back and just what I call immerse myself um, and blackness for me that was the affirmation right of my parents that was the affirmation of my friends those were my hbcu you know colleagues to kind of be in a space where i felt validated for you it's going to be something different mm-hmm. um because you've got to show back up we need everybody at the table <laughs> so we need you to show back up so sometimes it's about how do i take the step back brush off my armor make sure that my you know my mental health is in check my physical health is in check is something also that's critically important but always right thinking strategically um, in ways again and leveraging my network for feedback of folks who've been through it who can advise me whose advice I value but also who validate you know my experiences can I honestly say that was a word oh, like when I, I said, cried because felt every ounce of that from it's the tears for me you're right like, here it's it's and I think this conversation was an important conversation for us to have um being very like candid with our listeners I think mm-hmm. our experiences as doc students at a predominantly white institution. Hey, I'm ready to start with cow, okay? Like, have not been anything beyond what, you know, like, what we hear about on TV. Like, we've had those experiences where we, our names have been mistaken for each other, and we've, we've had those experiences. So, being able to sit and have this conversation with you, and you basically showing us what your armor looked like, but also helping us find our own, like, 
I, I'm at a loss for words, honestly. It was the strategy part for me because I'm the one who always wants to burn everything down and I don't feel satisfied until everybody knows that they're racist, everybody's stuff is on fire. But I've been learning that that like doesn't help all the time. Um, And recently we got someone new who's been on my side. Like we got a new faculty member who is very strategic Mm -hmm. and it's nice to have someone else affirm that. Because I'd be like, no, we need to burn the program down and start over. But then it's like, okay, but how are you going to get your degree if you do that? Um, So the strategy piece is nice. And it made me think, especially like for people who listen, about the importance of finding ways to streamline what you're feeling into something else, like transform it into something else that is helpful. Um, Especially about my client. Like, yeah, we have these emotions, but sometimes the thoughts and emotions we have aren't helpful. And so finding ways to turn that around and make it into something that protects you and keeps you going is just really nice. And mommy says yeah, I mean, I think on to your, right, let's let's think about your fire. Cause I, I don't know that that, you know, I think that exists to me too. Sometimes I say the same thing, Leticia, with regard to like burn it down, right? Um, hold on to your fire though. Let's think about how you use your fire. In essence, what you're telling me is that you want to disrupt the system. You recognize that the entire system, right, is problematic or flawed in some way. And so how do we disrupt that system? And so, yes, the strategy comes into place. If you want to disrupt, you know, training or, you know, the, the opportunities to train, the curriculum, whatever it is, right, with regard to, you know, doc student programs, you know, for example, we certainly can't do that if we have to visit you right? <laughs> because you actually literally like burned the place down, right? We need you at the table, right? To be the, whether it's the department chair or to, you know, to infiltrate the system. I think some of us have roles in that regard. We all have a role. There's a whole, huge pot, right? To sort of attack this on multiple fronts. But I think the strategic piece is important, but I also think it's important for you to validate the fire. That's part of your, you know, your armor as well, right? You're responding to, in essence, right, the emotion or the desire to react is because of, right, likely the the oppressive nature of the system. But that's where you take the deep breath. There are multiple ways mm, to disrupt system. Mm, mm. There are multiple ways, right, to start, you know, little little fires, right? If we you know, continue in that line of thinking, that don't compromise you mm. in the process um, is the idea. But we're we going to hold on to the, the and validate the anger because that's necessary, right? No, no social movement has passively happened. It's been about, right, the protest and the movement and the energy. So that's necessary. Um, but we also do want to, to recognize that collectively we go forward. And so how do we leverage and build our networks? Who's where, you know, how and how do we do that so that we can have a collective voice. That's what I did, right? In that master's program, nobody was, I wouldn't say no one was listening to me, but I was more impactful when I took a step back and said, okay, so y'all, y'all don't want to hear me when I raise my cla- you know, hands in the classroom and say this reading is problematic. Let me find some folks who've been in the field, done some things, published some stuff and put them on a panel and we'll do this at seven o'clock in the evening and we'll publicize it, right? And now we've got plenty of folks here and a program that now has to, in my opinion, kind of be forced to listen to, right? You know, not just my perspective, but those of their colleagues in the field um, that are talking about or saying some of the same things that I've been trying to. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it, it, that's important. That's what keeps us that to this day, right? For me now as a, a professional, it's a different level, but still, still the same ideas when I want to get up and walk out. I will say as you all, the other thing, 
sort of take this with a grain of salt, but also I think it's important. I'm sort of moving in this into the space, as I said, where I, I tend not to use the language of resilience as much as I do resistance, because I feel like surviving racial oppression in particular is an active process and the ways that social scientists and mental health folks tend to talk about resilience. It feels like it's sort of this passive thing that just exists within us when, as Dr. Metzger just described, actually, no, folks have either poured into us, we're pouring into ourselves, and we are actively waking up, right, and attempting to resist systems of oppression. Um, and so sometimes that resistance, I think, can look different. Sometimes that resistance isn't about acquiescing um, or, you know, kind of going along with you know, certain situations just to have a seat at the table. Sometimes it's knowing when you're in a position to stand up from the table, walk away from that table and build your own table and let people know that I'll be over here, right? I'm not just leaving silently. It's that I no longer, you know, sort of, I've tried, right? I've strategized, this is not happening, but let's also recognize when we, you know, in essence, sometimes I say like, like LeBron James, I'm taking my talents, I sort of tease, I'm taking my talents elsewhere, but also recognize the power that we do have within us, the skills, right, that we've built, the years of training to be able to have options and to be able to say, again, when we're in that position, so I'll encourage you all, right, as you think about getting your degrees to be in the position to be able to say, to know when we need to leave certain systems because all of our efforts, right, that we've tried and strategized about may not be working. And so it may become detrimental to ourselves. And so we need to go and we need to be prepared, right, to leave certain systems if the system isn't willing to change in ways that we hope or that it needs to. And for you guys as grad students, I wanna say that right, leaving is going to happen, right? You're going to graduate. And one of the things that I try to reiterate is that like Dr. Jernigan is saying, you don't wanna leave battered, bruised, angry, beaten down, right? You wanna leave having thrived even within this system that you're, you're working on navigating, even within the work and the research that you're doing. So I think that, um, ooh, especially as you paused and said, breathe, right? Like that's a part of the process that allows you to recharge and to actively restore yourself so that you can come back the next day and continue talking to these same people and smiling in their faces when you don't want to and using your opposite action, right? And using all of these strategies that can actively wear on you even as you are resisting and even as you are trying to cope. So one thing that we try to emphasize, like Dr. Jernigan said, is just unplugging, taking that pause when you need to, restoring yourself in the ways that you need to. So Leticia, I know you started taking walks with Mercy, your dog, right? Brianna's getting into deep breathing and being more mindful based on the works of Dr. Watson Singleton. So just bringing in what we know works for us and utilizing that to help us not only actively fight and resist, but to restore ourselves so that we can continue doing this work. And so that when we do have to transition somewhere else, right, we're not crawling and being dragged there, but that we are being able to leave and know what we're contributing and still have our identity intact. 
Yeah. And this is, again, not a perfect example, but I think that's why I laugh and sort of use the example of LeBron James, because, right, still at the top of his game, he had options, Mm -hmm. right? It's like, I'm leaving here by choice, right? Mm -hmm. You can't take any of this away from me. So when I, as I said, I'm moving into the space as a professional. I don't want anyone to prematurely leave, right, Mm -hmm. without ensuring that, you, you know, the CV is where it needs to be. You got your degrees, no professional relationships. It is still a small field, right? Necessarily um, disrupted, unless that's something that you've been advised, you know, <laughs> and absolutely someone's assisted you with. But it's like, I, I also don't want, as folks say, burn bridges. I don't do that, right. right? But it's certainly, I feel like I've got options and that's a good place to be in because I have worked because you've hard. Worked I haven't hard. let anyone compromise my goals. Yeah, and I don't let any, you know, I'm not going to compromise my goals for someone else, right? In an right. effort to have something to say in the moment right it's just kind of like okay let me take a breath let's see how i you know need to handle this situation because i will again reiterate what you all you know the tears that you feel like you said what resonates this is training for the field i mean this mm-hmm. to me you know when i think about being in class with peers that might say things i go to conferences and pre- present and see who's got a question right mm-hmm. <laughs> in the back try to submit a grant submit a paper every time i write a, a paper relative to race right there's always a reviewer Right, that has something to say, or it's, it's it's always a much more challenging process to kind of get through the review because someone doesn't quite understand it. And even though I may get angry, right, about that, it's kind of like, let me, you know, figure out how to persist. Um, so it is, you are training, you're learning skills now mm. um, while going through some of the, you know, situations that really will exist in the field until we get to a place, right, where we don't have the huge disparities, where there aren't a significant um, less number of black identified or other, you know, uh, psychologists of color, which is where we are now. So understand that as you leave home there at some point, right, you will likely go and you could be, right, Dr. Metzger amongst other colleagues training other, right, students, in, you know, at an, an, in an institution where there are very few faculty of color. So I think the other thing that I learned to appreciate is what are the, you know, while I'm living in my experiences, but also thinking about my future, let me also see how this relates to like my my mentor, my advisor, like, wow, what it, what might it be like for them as well? Like, what have they gone through? What are they going through in an effort to advocate for me? I wish the viewers could see mommy looking at me. It's funny because she tells me this stuff all the time. <laughs> you can burn it down, but you can't burn anything if your CV is not tight. As soon as you said CV, I said, huh? I'm not. It again. <laughs> you know, like when you don't listen to your parents and then somebody else comes and says the exact same thing. They be yes, saying, I appreciate the reinforcement. This has been. We, and we didn't, we just know we trained in very different places, right? With different folks around us, but this is, yeah, this is what it is. It's the same game. It's the <laughs> same just, battle. Yeah, it's the is. same dismantling that we're trying to do. It's the same journey. <laughs> it's the same coping skills. We it's like, oh, and this is a good viewpoint for the listeners too, just because. Well, I don't know this, but I think my path would be a little different just because I don't want to stay in academia. So a lot of the times I'd be like, yeah, okay, whatever. But for now, I am in it and I'll be here for a while because we're only second year. So maybe I should listen. Okay, you're right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I didn't think I wanted to be in academia. I always say I didn't look for academia. It fell in my you're lap. You're not in academia for over. real, right? <laughs> I'm always trying to, yeah, no. Serious, like, you know, I, I, again, strongly identify as a clinician, um, but those skills, 
mm-hmm. those research skill like mm-hmm. that you know that that still is on my cv right that's still what i use even if i'm doing if i'm doing you know working as a consultant or someone's calling me capital. up to ask for my expertise sure. because they've seen that i've published an article even as a clinician right clinicians published articles. The former president of the American Psychological uh, Association, Melba Vasquez, um, who's, you know, Latinx identified woman, right, is predominantly a clinician, but she publishes, right? She, you know, so it's it's about sort of, you get to craft your own journey, but I'll, you know, recognize that even if you're not a full-time faculty member in academia, you might end up teaching a class. You might end up doing your own professional development workshop. You're still instructing, right? So there's still aspects of academia that live within us based on our preparation that become part of our professional identity. And you you get to decide, right, what that ultimately looks like. Nevertheless, I certainly have been part of a group practice in the Northeast where I was the only woman of color. Mm. I valued my colleagues, right? Mm. But it was interesting in, in case consultation at mm. times. So mm. okay, we can think about this in you know multiple ways, quite frankly. Well, Dr. Jernigan, I feel like we're going to have to have you back because, yes, clinically, it's a whole different conversation, right? It is. Um, it works into something. <laughs> something. Yeah, I feel like we need to have the clinical conversation and then, like, the, yeah, like, the even myself, when I first met my department chair, I told him, like, I'm not here for tenure. I'm, I'm here to do the work. So I do think that there's something to be said about the work that we're able to do and the, you know, we have this conversation about the plantation, right? Like where we're able to do that work and what it looks like. So yeah, we're going to bring you back. <laughs> Thank you so, 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 right. so much. I'm like, yeah, we sort of went to, yes, our own, yes, it all, it all works, but you're right. The conversation can go in so many different directions. And it will, it will be continued here and forevermore. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to give you the opportunity if you have any kind of words of advice or last minute thoughts that you want to share with the audience. And then we're going to give Letitia a little bit of space, as you just mentioned, breathing um, to work Mm -hmm. through um, some coping skills with our listeners here as well. Yeah, I mean, I'll go back to where we started, you know, and just the, I'll end with the, the, you know, the the brief version of the backstory of racial trauma is real, which was written in 2015, right, at the last point in time, really, when the country was in a state of, you know, kind of national protest and Black Lives Matter was emerging, you know, based on the many deaths of Black individuals, uh, male, female, men and women, um, you know, the hands of police and in other instances. And it, for me, the title is racial trauma is real is validating the community so helping them you know understand that this is a very real experience that you're having while you're watching the news etc and it was racial trauma is real to the field because there wasn't in 2015 the recognition that we see today there wasn't all the phone calls right and requests for interviews on racial trauma there was still and there still are people that question right mm-hmm. <laughs> dr mesker's worker mine's like is this really a thing yes um and the and fact that you're also, asking that is a microaggression <laughs> And it also, which I think wraps up our conversation today, parallel process, I, when I wrote the hashtag to my you know, co-authors and colleagues, it was because we as licensed psychologists and all, many of us who also worked in academia in various roles, but also had private practices, were seeing clients of color who were coming in. And so we were needing to show up for them to support them. And we were struggling all as um, 
as uh, self-identified psychologists of color, and we were like, yeah, this is real. I'm from the East Coast, right? So, and that was me talking. So it has, it's had so many meanings, which is why, you know, we kind of stuck with it as opposed to some formal, you know, article and why we, you know, disseminated it to the general public. But it was like, this was real. Like we wanted to just be together. That's the collective piece. Um, so we wanted to eat and soothe ourselves, right? So we're thinking about how we cope. And it was just like, I'm having trouble getting up in the morning, right? Those sorts of things that we were all sharing with one another. So just a validation for the people, but also really challenging um, the field. So I'll encourage folks just to kind of know that what you're thinking, what you're feeling, your experiences as they pertain to racism, racial discrimination, racial stress are valid and real. And you don't live in the space of someone challenging those, right? And really think about then how are you coping and what do you need to introduce? Walking dog, deep breathing, et cetera, so that we're not compromised, right? By those very real experiences, but really have mechanisms to, to teach us to cope in the moment um, based on a phenomenon that's not likely to disappear and that we can't predict when the next instance may happen. Um, so it is about the sort of coping towards healing and that the healing for me is, is, is collective, right? Community, and that we continue to move in that direction is my hope. Amen. Listen, <laughs> I wish we had, Ian, give us some church sounds. We need, we need the choir <laughs> to come in. Uh, we, we're gonna pause for the benediction. You're like, come on. <laughs> <laughs> we, need you. we need this i appreciate you so so very much those are excellent words for us to pause and to end on miss leticia will you take about three minutes here to walk us through what's your coping skill for this week i am going to do four seven eights let's see belly breathing, breathing. let's do it uh, diaphragmatic breathing, if you want to be real fancy schmancy. Okay, so for our listeners, this is a quick way to sort of ground yourself if you're ever feeling, I don't know, any nervousness, anxiety, you're just having a tough day. This is a quick and easy thing to do. You can do it anywhere in the car, grocery store, what do I tell my kids, at school, and nobody will even notice that you're doing it. So you can be sitting, standing, you can lay down if you want. Um, and so I am going to count to four and you will breathe in on those counts. I will count to seven and you will hold it during those counts. And then I will count to eight and you will exhale during those counts. So I'll do one time so you can get the hang of it and then we'll do it again. Okay. So one, two, three, four. Hold it, three, four, five, six, seven, and out. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So for people who haven't done that before, it can be kind of hard to do, uh, like holding in for that long and breathing out for that long. So if you can't, that's okay. Um, you'll get better as you do it, but it will still work the same. We can go through it one more time. All right. One, two, three, four, and hold. Three, four, five, six, seven, and out. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And yeah, so that's 478 breathing. 
you can find videos on YouTube. It's just like, it's my favorite because it's a quick and easy thing and it grounds me pretty quickly. That was beautiful. Yeah. I certainly feel relaxed. Oh, Speedy Pie's back. Kobe's here. Let's see if Kobe will say something for you guys. Say hi, Coco. Hi, handsome. Hello. Kobe's feeling relaxed after breathing. Right. You feel zen? So thanks for listening to us, you guys. Don't forget we your breathing. You. Thanks for all the gems. We love you. And we will see y'all on the next episode. Bye, guys. Bye. Nice.